Hello, and welcome to another episode of Under the Radar SFF Books podcast. My name is Blaze. Thank you so much for joining me and listening wherever you may be around the world. If you like the content I create, please leave a review, like, and subscribe, retweet. It really helps me grow not only as a podcast creator, but also as a person. Today is time for another author interview, and I am pleased to be joined by Ricardo Pinto. Ricardo is the author of the Stone Dance of the Chameleon series, and a series he says is a dark fantasy like no other. I would like to add that as a grim dark fantasy series like no other, but that's a debate for another day. Ricardo, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be here. <laughs> Glad you can come join in these crazy times, especially with the pandemic and everything that's going on. It's nice to nice to take a step back and relax and talk about stuff that is really entertaining and your series as well. Because I feel like when I started this series, it was recommended to me by a close friend. Um, I didn't know what to expect, but now getting into it, it's it's a series that I feel like everyone should be reading, especially if you like darker tone themes. Um, and it's just a masterpiece, I think. Um, but I feel like not a lot of people know about you as the as the author. So if you could just take us back to how your career started and what made you want to become an author. Um, I did a degree in maths at university and then ended up working in computer games back in the 80s when, I mean, the stone age for computer games, really. And at some point, I lost interest in that and I decided to write a book. And I'd, I'd kind of half written this book when I was at university during my summer holidays. Uh, but the initial version was actually quite rubbish. Um, and then I got into it very deeply. Uh, I wrote the first one, got a publishing deal, got some foreign publishing deals, and um, it just went on from there, really. And then I, I, but it did take me a very long time to finish the three books, and that ended up clashing with the, the trajectory of the publishing industry. But in the end, the book ended up just being something that uh, I needed to write. The book you had such passion, has such intricate level of detail from the from the political system, from the blood ranking system, from the clothing that you describe the masters uh, wearing to the class system and, in, and the world itself. It's so detailed and so intricate. It's, I, I can tell it's taken you many years. I believe you said on your website, it's taken 10 years of you, for you to write this series. Is that Write it. Uh, and then a few years back, I decided that I wanted to edit it because uh, one of the complaints of the, the first edition was that the pace was a bit slow. And also I'd, I'd become a much better writer. So I actually ended up just reworking the whole thing, fixed lots of problems and uh, added quite a lot of new material. Um, so I probably have spent, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 years of my life working on this single work. Wow, that's incredible. And for those of you listening who are unfamiliar with what exactly we're talking about, so the, this series was originally published as a three-book series. And then recently, Ricardo went back and he re-edited the whole, the whole series, and it turned in from a three-book series to seven. So, And we'll go into details on that and what decisions he, wanted, he made and why, why he wanted to do that. So just a little bit of background on that. And going forward, when we refer to like book one in the series, I've only read the second edition. So we're going to be referring to like them that way. So the book one is titled The Masters. I'm actually holding it right now. The artwork is fantastic. So going into, let's, let's take a dive into the into this actual book series as well. 
what was the inspirations that you had for this series? It's a, it's a Mesoamerican um, series and it's very dark. So how, what was the background for that? Well, really, it was just, uh, I, I've now come to realize that it, it was actually just a, a, a psychological journey for myself. Um, what I ended up doing, although I didn't realize at the time I was doing, was writing a sort of mythological take on my family and childhood. Um, and I had absolutely no idea that's what I was doing. Um, and what I've also realized in subsequent years is that I fed into it just about everything I'd ever read. So, uh, and initially I started doing it because I wanted to produce text that I could illustrate uh, because I, I actually thought of becoming a professional illustrator. But then the thing just sort of take, took on a life of its own. And eventually it uh, just consumed my life really for the 10 or 12 years I was writing it. Oh, lovely. I didn't realize that it was an inspiration of everything that you've read previously and you're growing up. It was, it's one of those things that, uh, I mean, I think if you're writing anything, if it's any good, it's probably coming out of your unconscious. Uh, so the thing is, the book came out of me and it was only later on when I actually reflected on it, that I actually realized the things that were in it. Uh, and the, the further away I've got from it, the more I realized was in it. So initially I thought it was, it was, it was not really based on anything. And then later on, I started finding that it was actually based. I could, I started beginning, beginning to detect all the various little bits of influence that had fallen into it from all kinds of other things that I had come across. Um, yeah. Any writer, any person who puts out content would reflect back on their past experiences and stuff in the unconscious to bring to the page. And you said that you have a background in um, uh, mathematics, and that definitely comes to the forefront, especially when I looked in the book and on your website of doing the blood ranking system. It's very intricate and it's very de detailed about that. Um, could you just go into a little bit of detail of how like the blood ranking system works and it determines like the hierarchy and, um, of the major houses and the God emperor themselves and how this system works. I feel like it's a very important part of the series. The, the idea is that when somebody is elected to become a God emperor, their, their blood becomes infused with kind of divine ichor, you know, divine blood. And it's considered to be absolutely pure. And uh, as the God Emperor has children, the, the mixture of his pure blood with the impure blood or the contaminated, tainted blood of anybody else starts producing children that are a mathematical sum of those, the, the mixture. And as a consequence, um, even if you've, you've basically intermarried with somebody that was originally related to the Emperor 500 years before, it will have purity of the blood will basically have percolated down through your lineage. Uh, and what they do is they basically, uh, they count in base 20. That's a very Mesoamerican thing. And so you, the rank that you have is dependent on how many zeros you have in the fraction of taintedness of your blood. And so it's, you know, the, the zero in the first position is one twentieth. A zero in the second means that you don't even have one... Uh, one four hundredth and then one eight thousandth and, and so on. And so they, they, they basically, there are these people called the wise, this class of people um, in, in, in this world. And they keep extremely careful records of 
the the exact percentage of tainting that anybody has in their blood. And then when it comes to people basically trying to, you know, these these uh, aristocratic houses, as they're basically trying to uh, achieve power, they uh, with uh, because the voting system, there's various things that people vote on. One of them being when they elect a god emperor, and the amount of votes you get is dependent on your blood rank. So as a consequence, um, people are constantly trying to uh, produce children with very pure uh, women who have very untainted blood so that their sons uh, can then be much purer. And then they, they've got, they, they can cast vastly more votes in, in these elections. And so everybody's completely obsessed with blood rank. And to the point where the, the imperial house, which is called the House of the Masks, actually uh, will they will make deals when they're, they're trying to uh, canvas for votes to become God Emperor. They'll make deals with one of the houses, the aristocratic houses, where uh, they will actually lend a woman to produce a child oh, wow. for one of the houses, and then they'll, they'll bring her back in. Or you, I mean, in very, very rare uh, circumstances, they will actually, uh, you know, she could, this woman could intermarry into one of the houses, but mostly they would just, so there's this constant bartering going on. And so uh, the currency they used amongst themselves is called, uh, they're called eyes, they're they're iron coins that got an eye on each side. And uh, iron is the most precious substance in this world. And it's tied up very much with the iron that is in blood. So everything, revolves around this, this this issue of blood and purity of blood. That's a fantastic system that you created, and it's paramount to the main plot in The Masters, which is book one. So why don't we go into the main plot of, of book one? It starts off um, on an island with the main character's name is Carnelian, and he sees ships on the black sails, black ships on the horizon. And there's Chosen, which is the highest class. They're come to ask his father to return to the capital to participate in the election of a new god emperor. And that's just the main plot for the fir- first book, getting to the capital. And it's also it's not just a journey. Um, well, the plot is to get to the capital, but it's also the journey itself that is also the main focus of the plot because you're going through different lands, you're going by sea, you're going through on this long road and surrounded by uh, different citizens and there's a plague going on. So there's different and ranking systems and then there's slaves and it's just fantastic. So could you just talk about the main plot, how this came to your mind and what you wanted, what you wanted the reader to see um, in at least the first book, we don't have to go into further spoilers of that. The, the point about it is that I wanted to, I wanted to start the book where I assume most of my readers are going to be, which is in the Northern hemisphere of, of, of the planet. You, you want to start outside this world and mm-hmm. then gradually move towards its center so that you can't, by the time you arrive at the center, which is, I mean, the center of this world is a place called Osrakum, which is a, it's a caldera. It's at the center of this huge plateau, which is called the Guarded Land. And the, the, the chosen, this is what they call themselves, uh, everybody else calls them the masters because they are literally the masters of everything. They basically live within this caldera and they very rarely leave it. 
there are complicated issues to do with the fact that they're actually not allowed to leave it, which is to do with an ancient civil war and some complications. Um, as a consequence, within this caldera, this, this uh, hollow, hollowed out uh, volcanic crater, which has got a lake in it, uh, they have basically drawn in the entire wealth of continents, and it's all concentrated there. And outside Osrakum uh, is just basically slave estates, subsidiary uh, cities in various places, and all kinds of lands that are also part of, of this, this, it's an empire, but they call it the Commonwealth. And so the idea really was, rather than just dropping the reader right into Osrakum and into the politics, I wanted them to see what this amazingly opulent society of the masters, what it was based on, what are the foundations of this world. And the whole thing on, on a certain level is an allegory with the Western world, you know, where we live in extreme splendor, we import all the stuff from the rest of the world. And we have this kind of wall around us, which is like the, the walls of the caldera, which basically means that when you're inside, you can't see outside, you can't see the misery upon which your wealth is based. So, but on the other hand, there's another aspect to this, which is I was actually born in Portugal, I ended up, which was a southern country uh, in Europe. Um, and then I moved to, I live in Scotland now, and I went as a six-year-old child. So this actually kind of mimicked my journey of, uh, or it's reversing my journey, you know, starting off in the North and then going back to, because this is a book about my childhood. What I found most intriguing about um, Cornelian specifically, because he's the, he's the main POV character. And he's such a, you see him at a young age, he's in his late, late teens. Um, and he's, he's basically the, he's the reader. He, as everything is unfolding and he's learning about, uh, the blood ranks and the the election to come and the misery and seeing this new world that he's ne never been a part of his father has, but he was sheltering him from him until he had no choice, but to take him on this journey. That is his journey is pro profound. And he goes through a lot of miserable things along the way. His journey, is it based off of any personal ch childhood experiences, or is this something that you wanted to do like the shock value of him experiencing this world blind and without knowing ahead of time what's going on? From the point of view of a writer, I mean, it is a bit of a contrivance. How do you actually, when, when you create a, a very complex world, fantasy world, what you don't want to do is give info dumps all the time to the reader. So it seemed to me that the best way to do this was to actually have the, the main character experience as you as you put it basically that he he you, the reader is carnelian on a certain level and has that sort of experience yeah so carnelian it's it's quite difficult to actually contrive a situation in which somebody that is a member of this elite that are basically locked into this caldera how it is that one of them could be a child uh, it was important it was a child because, for, well, for various reasons, I mean, because otherwise he wouldn't have any the innocence that's required. Because I think the thing about it is he has to be innocent because the reader is innocent insofar as they don't know anything about this world. But it's also the case that uh, he has to be able to be able to be part of the world of the masters, but not corrupted by it. Because actually every single master you meet, you'll realize is, is I mean, some of them are bordering on being psychos. <laughs> because they just well they, they they have absolute power absolute wealth and they're constantly telling themselves that they are the seraphim they are they are basically an angelic species that is above all others 
it's impossible for the reader to put themselves in that place. So Carnelian had to be outside. So I had to, in a sense, the, the, one of the things that the plot's about, and it's actually, why is it that uh, his father has not prepared him for going back to Osrakum? And that actually is, is a, a question that is not actually answered until the very end of the book, the end, you know, volume six of the, of the, of the, the, the series. So there is something, it is quite peculiar as to why this has happened. You know, why is it that he actually is so innocent? Yep, this series, um, it, I'm only up to book three. I just finished Standing Dead like several weeks ago and I'm looking forward to continuing with the, the series. So I haven't reached that point yet, but I'm very much looking forward to it. And with each volume, you, you progress the plot slowly. It's very much like a slow burn type of story where you're just introducing different layers and layers of, of detail, of like political maneuvering, um, more in more involved in the in the masters, and you introduce other creatures as well. One thing I, I wanted to ask about because um, this is this touches home to me: uh, the gods that the god emperor and the masters or the chosen uh, worship are the twin gods. So my wife is a twin, and she's an older pair of twin brothers. So I just have to ask this this question: What was the um, what was the background uh, and the choice to have like a twin gods? And also there's another aspect of it with this God system uh, come to you and, and the worship of that. Um, it's again, that's actually quite a deep question because uh, the book has many themes, but some of the very fundamental themes it has in it um, is um, a contrast between the number two and the number three. And you will see in it constantly twos and threes being very, very significant. The, the book actually, as you will see later on, if you once you get into volume two, actually has two main protagonists. And what I came to realize much later on was that they actually, uh, well, I mean, two things. One of them is that they are, they're like uh, the two halves of my personality. So it's a way of actually splitting the personality of a single individual into two parts. And actually later on, because I've read some books and so on, I came to the conclusion that one of them actually is like the left hemisphere and the other one is the right hemisphere that all of us have. So there's, there's all kinds of aspects of the number two which appear in places. So it's not just that they worship the twin gods who are, you know, the, the kind of the obsidian god and the jade god, or the, they've got lots of names, um, uh, but also uh, the palace guards are all Siamese twins, conjoined twins. That's one of the things and I the, wanted to talk about, but I didn't want to ruin any spoilers. Literally, these things are forced. Like the, the, the wise poison mothers so that they will give birth to, to conjoined twins. And the reason for this is just to symbolically represent the twins by actually having these twins joined moving around the palace, you know, as, as all the palace guards. So, but the, the religious aspect of this is the whole book has a very deep sort of uh, mythological level, which is all to do with these two gods. And uh, if you follow it, once you get to the end, you will actually realize why the significance of all of that. Um, but it's also the case that you can interpret the whole story as being uh, being driven, because it can be driven, it, it seems to be driven by the gods on a certain level, but then you can flip the whole thing and actually realize the whole thing is being driven by uh, Carnelian's unconscious because he, he starts paying attention to more and more to his dreams. 
And the images that appear in the dreams basically are telling him to do certain things. And he then struggles whether he follows this or not. Uh, and you can look at it as having a religious input, or you can actually look at it um, as not having, as all being as unconscious. So, yes, it's very important. I mean, you've picked on a very important level of the book. Uh, I try to pick certain parts that I've grown attached to and stuff that really struck my mind. And I'm sure it'll read illustrate the fancy of other readers as well. And that was just fantastic. Um, another aspect that I just um, loved, and this is more into book two, but it's not a spoilers, is you do a lot of um, heavy telling with uh, beadwork um, to tell like histories of, of the land and um, uh, stories and certain aspects of the culture mm-hmm. itself. First off, Bravo. That was fantastic. I loved reading that section. Um, how much uh, research did you have to do into that particular um, aspect of the storytelling? And is this something you always wanted to tell in this story? No, the, the, this stuff, which is called Beat Chord, it really is just an adaptation of Kipu, which is uh, the knotted chords used by the, the Inca. My version of it, the reason is that the people who this Beat Chord is produced for there are these books, basically, that are like huge um, reels with all this stuff wound around it. And so that's a book. And then they, they sit at a particular kind of chair and they pull the, the, the thread out and then they read it with their fingers. The reason being they are blind. And so the point is they're feeling the beads and the beads have got different shapes and different temperatures and different textures. And so this is just the way that blind people can encode uh, texts. So... I actually thought of doing it with knots originally, and then for some reason this notion of the beads came out. But then you'll find that, for example, the Ys are wearing wearing costumes that actually have uh, sort of beaded in the, the garments themselves, which they can, which basically are texts. So there are these texts everywhere that they can feel and read from. Yeah, I do remember reading that with when you talk about the the clothing that the masters and chosen wearing, like from the masks to the headgear to like all the all the clothing it's just and the and the shoes uh i believe they're called the, the ranga uh <laughs> or not those are funny scenes to read yes those are extremely peculiar things it's just that they there are all sorts of layers to chosen society i'm using the word chosen now because i'm seeing it from their point of view rather than from the point of view of their subjects sure uh one of the things is they're obsessed with purity i mean the purity of the blood is very important but they also have notions of purity. And as a consequence, one of the things they do is people of different ranks, uh, when at the, they're at court, there's this island in the middle of this, the lake, which is in the middle of the caldera. And that's where the God Emperor lives. And uh, whenever they're on this, this, this place, it's kind of sacred land, but even it's still not pure enough. So they wear things that are basically like huge platform shoes. And the higher the rank, the, the taller the shoes, to the point where they're actually, you know, uh, because they're very tall anyway, the masters are bred for tallness. So you actually end up with, with some of them wandering around, and they, you know, they're, they're, I don't know, 20 foot high or something, absolutely ridiculous. And this is just this constant obsession with hierarchy and control and display. So the, 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 the reason I pay attention to the, the, the details, the, the costumes, is because the costumes themselves act as part of the way that people express their rank. The reason, of course, there is so much detail, I mean, is because my absolutely inspirational urtexts, there are two, uh, well, there's several, but I mean, there are two that really, one is Tolkien 
obviously Lord of the Rings, Neil is Dune. And this book lies sort of absolutely uh, in the middle of those two. And unfortunately, I mean, I say this unfortunately because it basically consumed many, many years of my life. I followed Tolkien's method, which is to make everything, work everything out. So, I mean, I did actually work with the linguist and we produced language, which is queer, which is, I mean, he's a professor of linguistics and he, uh, so we produced the, this language, which in the end, I hardly used at all. There's a poem at the beginning of the first book, which is in queer, but I went to that level of detail. I got, a, I became friends with a professor of geology and we worked out all the landforms to make sure that they were accurate. I went to ridiculous degrees to try and make everything correct. So for example, I, won't, I wouldn't use, I didn't want to use seconds and hours because that's our world. So I basically communicate the passing of time using shadows. And so I, I had all these, these, these things that would calculate shadows and so that I would plonk in what time of day it was and it would tell me what the lengths of the shadows. I mean, it just, but that level of detail comes at a great cost, which is it takes you forever to actually get it all done. Well, we're all, I'm very thankful that you went to that level of detail because it made this a much, uh, I can't put into words how like detailed and great the the layers are in, in this world. It's, it really comes, shines through and it definitely, it stands out from other grimdark and, and fantasy novels in general with the amount of detail and care you put into this world. So thank you for that. And thank your linguistic and geology friends for assisting you with, with that. Um, I just want to talk briefly about so you went from a first edition to a second edition. Could you just expand upon, I know you said readers um, were talking about how the, the book fell a little bit too bloated and you wanted to s- uh, slim it down a little bit, but ideally, what was the main like reasons for wanting to split this into a seven book? And you said, trim down the language and you added a, a lot of uh, some writing and you rewrote one of the characters, which I'm not going to get into right now. <laughs> the thing was, I'm obviously a perfectionist. The three books originally, the characteristics of, I said before that three and two are very important. One of the things is very, so there, there are three colors that are really important, green, black, and red. And so I wrote a trilogy and it was originally, you know, the green book, the red book, uh, sorry, the black book and the red. But once I got far enough away from the first edition, I started realizing that there was a fourth color, which was blue, which is again in there. I mean, literally there's, there's, there's all kinds of, uh, kind of architectural arcs that span the whole the whole work, but there's literally uh, uh, one that spans from the first sentence to the last sentence of the whole thing, and and the thing that goes it goes from basically being a cloudy sky to a blue sky, and so the color blue was there, but I had put it in, but I didn't realize it was that important. The other thing was that um, the when I was writing the books, I when I was writing the second book of the trilogy. I was getting into major trouble with my publishers because I was taking too long to write it. So at some point I suddenly decided to just close it and throw a chunk of what was what originally I thought was in the second book into the third book. And as a consequence, the, the first book ended up being 200,000 words. The, the second book was 200,000 words and the third book was 300,000 words. And then at some point I suddenly realized that the whole point of the book is uh, the breaking of the three. And so I then basically decided that, and, and, and the book had been originally designed, again, like Tolkien, uh, unconsciously, I designed it in six parts, but because of this extra, this weird throwing over, 
I ended up having seven parts. So it naturally broke up into seven parts of 100,000 words each. And so, uh, so at some point I was, stand, I was sitting outside in my garden. I started moving pebbles around on the floor, on the ground. And I just put these pebbles and I, threw, and I, and I saw this seventh thing and it just felt right. And so it was just, it became a very deep uh, artistic uh, reason that I needed to break the three into, to, into seven. And with those new seven books comes the beautiful art illustration. I'm holding up right now um, one for the first one. And, and these are sketched and done by you. Is, is that correct? Yes, they are. These are drawings that I produced. Actually, most of them are drawings that I produced at the time, even before I'd started writing the book. So that some of them are 30 years old. And they were actually, most of them are black and white ink illustrations. And I had a friend of mine who was an artist who was going to knock up some covers for me because of some work I'd done with him. Uh, but then I actually decided to get him to give me money instead because I needed the money. And then it just happens. I had seven pieces of artwork. I thought, okay, that's a bit weird. Um, so then I started making up the covers using Photoshop and so on. But in the end, I couldn't use the seventh cover, the seventh illustration I had. So the seventh one I made, I just did recently, which was the first drawing I'd done in 30 years. It's quite weird. Um, I, because these, these seven books have been self-published and you are told constantly when you're reading up anything about self-publishing that you need to get professional people to make up your covers. And I thought to myself, look, no, I want to do that. This is an artistic work. It's a piece of art. And I, I just wanted to use my, 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 my artwork. I've decided that I wanted to have those images on it. So that's what I did. Well, they're very beautiful, I can tell you. And, and they're 100% fantasy and like, like darker toned fantasy books. I have the whole, the whole series and each one is better than the next. And just the color, the color system that you use is just, it's very bright and it's very vibrant and I just love it. And also the maps, the map, each book has a slightly different map. You just keep expanding the world into like certain sections where our characters are. Um, and that's just, that's just remarkable. And going off of that, a lot of other sketches and artwork are seen on your website, ricardopinto.com. I was looking at it just this morning and scenes that you come into your mind that you want to write down. I've seen like sketch, I've seen like at least two dozen sketches that you have on there. So is that, was that your writing process? Sometimes I needed to draw things to be able to, to see them. I mean, there, you will find on my site, there's enormous amounts of, of diagrams or, you know, of, of actually spaces within that are described in the book. And I didn't put them in the book because you know the publishers would only pay for a certain number of maps. I actually knocked up a couple of, uh, two maps specifically for the seventh edition, with, uh, the seventh, sorry, the, the seven books of the second edition, which were maps I made entirely myself. The other, the other ones were based on mine, but done by a professional illustrator. So I, I just used drawing as a way to help me understand the way spaces work, just various things. And some, some, some particular scenes, as you say, there's some sketches of various things. You know, I drew the ship that they traveled on because I wanted to have a feel for, I wanted to really feel what it was like and, and get a feel for. Uh, and all of this is, I mean, fundamentally, the whole point of doing all of this is that you do it, you use it, and then you throw it away. Because I don't want to burden the reader with my the amount of work I've done. I mean, I'm doing this work uh, so that the reader, the reader's experience is as immersive and 
natural and easy as, as I want to do all the work for them so that they have no doubts that they are in you know, good hands because of the fact that the other thing that the book is, is a kind of, it's, it's quite a deep whodunit. And uh, so it's like a mystery book. And the thing about it is there's all kinds of clues in, there's, there's some very gobsmacking um, revelations at the end of the whole work and the various ones throughout it. And I made sure that the, the, the evidence for these revelations was always in plain view. Now, if you're going to do that, you've got to make absolutely certain that if there's something that's quirky in the text, that doesn't, the, the reader is thinking, this doesn't quite make sense, so that it sits in the back of their minds and worries them a little bit, that uh, that, that thing isn't just a mistake. So that means you have to make the whole surface of the thing as flawless as possible when it comes to logic, uh, the way things connect, the way people, everything has to be really, so that the, the clues, the, the things that are strange are absolutely meant and the, the reader can feel confident that's what's going on. Yeah, I got that same feeling. And I was looking through your website this morning and you give like a Bible for the stone dance of the chameleon. I was looking through some of some of those like links and um, I kind of wish when I read, because I read the first three and I just noticed that like two weeks ago, kind of wish I kind of went along and saying, okay, this, this sounds a little confusing. Let me go through that. I had to figure it out on my own. So for all you new um, readers picking up this series, highly recommend on Ricardo Pinto's website, going through the, the Bible uh, book by book, because there is spoilers if you just go and click on random uh, links for this series. So that'll help you tremendously. And um, it is organized into the books. I've, I, I, you get material gets repeated in the sections on the website, uh, which has extra material added because you now know something that you didn't know before. So if you follow, if you the Bible is laid out in such a way that you can basically have, they're like companion volumes to the book. To the books and you can basically be absolutely certain that if you just stay within the section of my website which is attached to one of the, the volumes that you will not get any spoilers yeah exactly just follow follow the the sections um, and it will help you through any difficult parts you're, you're having because it is quite detailed and you could be missed something you mentioned before that one of your inspirations for writing this it was lord of the rings and also uh dune and i'm huge um Dune fan. It's one of my favorite science fiction books ever. Have you seen the movie? Did you enjoy it? Loved it. I thought it was a masterpiece. I mean, I really, really liked the um, David Lynch one. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, even though it was uh, massively flawed, it's been one of my favorite movies forever. And actually the new Villeneuve one actually has some that's kind of shunted it off 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 the stage a bit because I'm so impressed by this new one. Dune is an absolute. If you if you like Dune, uh, the Stone Dance is actually very Dune-ish. There's a few more inspirations. I mean, Moorcock was an inspiration. The book She by H. Ryder Haggard, which is an amazing book. I don't know if you've, it's really highly recommended. And Salambo, which is a Gustav Flaubert. Those are the five books that absolutely. Uh, are the foundations upon which I built. However, uh, I would I would give a prize to anybody that can actually find anything specific in my book that they could pin down having come from any of these other books. It's not that I've actually 
pilfered anything. It's that I have they fed my unconscious. Well, now that I know that you have you sprinkled little hints into the series from from Dude and Lord of the Rings, I'm going to be keeping a keen eye on that. I love I love finding like little hints that relate to something else or that will make revelations further along in this in this series. As I mentioned multiple times, uh, like Malazan and Janie Wirt's War, Light and Shadow series are my two of my favorite works, and that's right up my right up my alley. With the Stone Dance of the Chameleon um, all finished. Are there any new projects that you are currently uh, working on? I am working on a science fiction book, which is, it's about religion and ecology and AI. And uh, it's just, it's a, it, it'll be very dense, but, and it'll be quite, sh- uh, it'll be a short book. I wrote a piece which has ended up going into um, a tribute book for my friend Storm Constantine, who died recently. And it's called Renunciation. It's a standalone piece, but it basically describes the process of one of the, you know, the candidates becoming one of the wise. Oh, you know, the actual process. Yeah, it's 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 pretty it's pretty full on grim, 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 grim. Um, I mean, it's grimmer than most things, let me tell you. Uh, but uh, that actually is potentially the prologue for a prequel to the Stone Dance that I'm thinking of writing which is set 700 years prior to the events in this book, in the Sundance. And uh, in the past couple of years, it's been, I've done a bit, quite a bit of work on it, but it's becoming more and more, you know, something that I'm feeling that I, I need to get to. Yeah, that's something that I would 100% read because the wise are some of the more interesting um, characters that you introduce into your world and any more information on those and like the God Emperor and all that, political aspects of it would be fantastic. So definitely keep us appraised for any progress on that. And congrats on the the science fiction book. I hope it works out very well and that we get to see that relatively soon. So with that, I think we'll wrap up. Um, Why don't you uh, tell the uh, audience members where they can find you on social media and your website. And uh, I know you have a blog, a hermit uh, abroad and when you comment on those. Well, my website, uh, which is ricardopinder.com, has everything. I'm, I'm on Facebook, which you, it, there are links to this in my website. There's my mailing list, which you, you're welcome to join. And uh, I've got two blogs on my thing. One of them is a kind of just a news blog. I'm, I'm, very, I'm, not, I'm not good at keeping them up. And the other one is a more a soft philosophical blog, which I've sort of stopped writing. <laughs> haven't written in it for a while because uh, I wasn't entirely sure if anybody was reading it. And it's got full of philosophical stuff and scientific conjectures and all kinds of other things. I, I don't really do Twitter, but I'm on Instagram. And Instagram's got a kind of, uh, it's like an extended CV and it's got a lot of, of stuff to do with the stone dance in it. Um, Lovely. Well, thank you so much, Ricardo, for joining me. I really appreciate it. And for every one of you, be sure you pick up uh, Stone Dance of the Chameleon. First book is The Masters. It is a truly a dark fantasy like no other, and you'll definitely be enjoying it. So, Ricardo, thank you so much, and hope we'll do this again someday. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, cheers. cheers.